0: providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Today's discussion
1: with leaders of one of the truly iconic development and commercial real estate ownership companies in the world. This is our 51st Walker webcast, and it was a year ago today that we started this series. I'm truly humbled by the quality of guests that have given an hour of their time to join me over the past year to discuss everything from commercial real estate to racial justice to training for the tokyo olympics ceos analysts best-selling authors professional athletes university presidents we've had them all and i'm simply thrilled that the walker webcast has been watched live or on replay by over 300 000 people and that it continues to attract a large audience every week i'm sure everyone attending today's webcast remembers vividly what our world felt like a year ago. Similar to knowing exactly where we were or what you were doing on 9-11, this week last year was very scary. We were frantically buying toilet paper, figuring out how to use Zoom and watching the stock market plummet. And yet here we are only a year later with a safe and high effective vaccine being rolled out across the country. States removing COVID protocols in hopes of returning to a more normal life and the stock market at an all-time high american innovation execution and tenacity have likely not been seen like this since world war ii it is truly amazing where we are today and with sustained discipline for the next few months we should find ourselves back to a more normalized world this summer i would even be remiss if i didn't make a quick comment about walker and dunlop this morning When I joined the company in 2003, we were a very successful boutique mortgage bank with one office, 43 employees, and a loyal yet small client base, predominantly in the mid-Atlantic. And over the past 17 years, thanks to adding incredible people, acquiring some amazing businesses, and setting bold, highly ambitious goals, we have grown and grown. We finished 2019 as the fifth largest lender in the multifamily industry, and set a goal last year to grow to being number one over the next five years, which would require jumping over CBRE, Wells Fargo, and JP Morgan in the rankings. Well, yesterday, the Mortgage Bankers Association released their annual rankings for 2020, and Walker & Dunlop was the largest provider of capital to the multifamily industry. There goes that goal. It is truly astounding what the team at Walker & Dunlop has accomplished. And like my two guests today, we are now faced with what's next. And like my two guests today, I am blessed to have an incredible team with a powerful brand to lead our company and industry forward over the coming years and decades. My final comment before introducing Jeff and Laura, Walker and Dunlop's relationship with Heinz is thanks to Gerald Hines and Larry Melody cementing their relationship with the financing of the Houston Galleria in 1970. That deal was a marquee deal for both Heinz and the LJ Melody company and formed a partnership and friendship between the Heinz and Melody families that endures today. Tom Melody, his son, John and brother, Mike are all members of the W and D team today. And it is thanks to them that Jeff and Laura are joining me today and that our two firms are doing so much together. Today also happens to be Tom's 60th birthday. So happy birthday, Tom. And thanks to you and your family for all you do to make Walker & Dunlop so great. A quick background on Heinz, and then I'll introduce Jeff and Laura. Heinz is a global real estate development firm founded in 1957 by Gerald Heinz. It has a presence in 225 cities in 25 countries and $144 billion of assets under management. 75 billion of that AUM is where Heinz is the investment manager and $67 billion is where Heinz provides third-party property-level services. Jeff Heinz is owner, chairman, and chief executive officer. He became president in 1990 and has dramatically expanded Heinz's products, services, and foreign market penetration. Jeff is a graduate of Williams College and Harvard Business School. Jeff's vision for Heinz is to, quote, be the best real estate investor, partner, and manager in the world, unquote. Laura Heinz-Pierce is senior managing director in the office of the CEO at Heinz. She is a member of the firm's executive committee and focuses on firm-wide strategy, risk management, and development. She was part of the grassroots team that established the One Heinz Women's Network, which led to the creation of Heinz's diversity and inclusion initiative. Laura went to Duke and also has an MBA from Harvard Business School. So first of all, Jeff and Laura, thank you very much for joining me today. Jeff, I mentioned in your bio, you have dramatically scaled the business, and we're going to go back and talk about the firm's history from when your dad started it to when you joined it. But as I ran through the amazing history, I noted that in 2005, Heinz had $12 billion in assets under management. And today, as I just mentioned, that number is $144 billion. That's an astounding 12x growth in AUM over
0: the past 15 years. So let's start with just how'd you do it? First of all, thanks for having Laura and I on, on this uh, series that you've created. It's, it's pretty amazing what you've created in that year. Yeah, it's been pretty exciting growth. I'd say the answer to that is multifold. First of all, it's things that were set in place right from the beginning at Heinz that my dad established, uh, You know, the culture, the integrity, the fair dealing with people, the performance that was created early on. I mean, that's certainly a part of it. It's sort of the flywheel effect. Once you get the right culture in place, the right footprint in place, the right people in place, and have that sort of track record, it all builds on itself and the flywheel can be pretty powerful. I mean, so that's a big reason. Three other reasons, one of which is our broad push into the investment management business. And Willie, you called us a global real estate developer i 'm going to correct you and say we were a global real estate investment manager of which development is one of the things we do and do very well and are certainly very proud of our history but that's one of the ways we're serving investors in addition to some of the others so we've invested heavily in it both organizationally and and dollar wise and so that's provided some of that growth too and I would say in the last decade, another reason is that we've really pushed very hard into other product types i mean we had this with this great footprint, and we had this great group of people running the firm in various spots around the globe, it only made sense to sort of leverage that by adding other product types. So this next year, we're going to have more underway in the living sector that we do in the office sector, and industrial's not that far behind. So product diversification has been a major linchpin of the last decade, and that's allowed us to grow pretty significantly. And then the last point, and this may be the most important point, is that we really have the wind at our back in terms of who we are and what the investor community thinks of real estate investment managers. Traditionally, a lot of real estate investment managers made money by great beta, timing the market well, getting in and out the right places. And uh, that worked very well. And people were able to create great track records. On that, but as information becomes more readily available, that edge is starting to go away. And what's really the scarce commodity now, going forward, we think, and a lot of investors feel this way at least, is the alpha side of the equation—the ability to create returns at the property level itself, doing something with the real estate, getting your hands dirty with the real estate, fixing operations. So. That is something that we have a history of achieving, you know, adding over 200 basis points of alpha to our investments over our, over our history, which is, you know, I think, probably one of our most remarkable stats. And so because of our vertical integration, many investors really want to invest more with investment managers like us that also do its timing, but uh, are adding value at the real estate level.
1: So Jeff, let me just follow up on that for a second, because if you will, corrected me on saying development firm into asset management firm, but you were an incredibly successful real estate development firm and still are. Yet in the mid 2000s, you made the distinct decision to change the strategy and and move much more rapidly into that asset management business, if you will, and not necessarily away from development, but to grow that What was it at that time that, I mean, you were such a successful development firm at that time. I'm just curious as to what it was that led you to say, we need to add the people, the resources, the know-how to scale that side of our business over the next decade.
0: I would say we started our our journey to uh, being a a global real estate investment manager really in the early 90s. Uh, That's when we sort of made the decision to start acquiring assets as in addition to developing assets and it's been more of an evolution rather than a revolution to where we are I'd say you know we started did our first fund in the mid 90s really because we were doing emerging markets real estate development in emerging markets and it was very difficult for one investor to plunk down a big bet in one project in China it really became necessary to raise a fund so that Investors could diversify their risk across many countries and many, many projects in order to get that done. And once we had raised the fund, we started to see the benefits of it and what we could provide as a firm to that, that business. So we, we got into it more and more. And, and it's just, you know, I'd say we are, as I really leaned into it in the last decade, but a lot of that is because of the success and experience we had prior to that. So Laura, I want to bring you in here
1: because you've watched the evolution and growth of this company throughout your life. I was curious, is there a memory that you have from your childhood when your father or grandfather took you to some city to see a an asset that was being built and you got to go up to the top of it and look out over some city you've never seen before or your family was building a huge iconic building in a city where you got to meet someone special that was sort of a unique experience that you remember back to.
2: Sure. You know it's funny I our history is is so much a part of our culture and it's you know it's absolutely woven into our DNA. And and just on the on the previous topic, a little bit of a funny story. I think it is taken time to evolve into who we are, but we are very good at evolving. And, you know, I think there is a lot of debate of how do we acquire buildings? And is that the right thing for us to do? Because frankly, there is a question of, will other people's buildings be as good as ours? We know ours are good. So how can we trust we can acquire others? And what does that mean? The history is so much a part of our firm. But growing up, you know, I think my dad actually made a very purposeful decision to keep us a little bit arm's length from the business. And I think that was a a decision based on really wanting us to make our own decisions about our career path, about our journeys in life, and not feeling pressured to join the business. Certainly, if that was what we decided we wanted to do after exploring all the avenues, I think that he was very excited to welcome us. If that was the case, but that then translated to I actually don't have a ton of memories of really being out and touring real estate and being on job sites. I know if you asked my dad that question about his childhood, he'd have a very different answer because my grandfather used to bring him to construction sites as an eight-year-old before school and. You know, probably in very dangerous situations, walking (laughs) walking through construction sites, and so certainly there were really incredible opportunities that that I got growing up. I remember visiting China in the '90s because we joined my dad on a business trip as we were, you know, Heinz was in the process of entering China as a business, and in the '90s, and China was a very different world. I mean. People were excited to see my curly hair. I mean, it was, you know, it was a very different world back then. So I got incredible opportunities on that front and certainly was exposed to the business broadly, but it was a purposeful decision, I think. And I think that's been important for me knowing that, you know, I explored other career paths and opportunities and I've found my way to Heinz and I think was very purposeful about that because of the opportunity I had and lack of pressure that I had.
0: And, and Willie, that is the exact same formula that my dad used with me. I mean, you coming from a family business probably feel the same. If, if, if your dad would have pressured you to come in the business, you might have run the other way. And my dad purposefully didn't allow me to come to the our own decisions. And I think that's really important. You, do, you don't want to have someone be at a family firm because they feel they need to be or have felt pressured to be. Yeah. I and mean, that's one of the secrets. So
1: Jeff, Laura just talked about, first of all, you know her education is both economics as well as art history. And she, she worked at Sotheby's for a number of years. So who knows whether Laura today would, would be running Sotheby's rather than uh, helping you run Heinz. But your father, as I read back in the history of Heinz, Your father as a child in Gary, Indiana, went to Chicago and saw the Wrigley building and made a comment that someday he'd like to build that. But what he didn't include in that sentence, or at least it's not not written down, was, and I want to work with the very best architects in the world in building that building. What was it about your dad that allowed him to be so groundbreaking as it relates to architecture? Because Heinz really of all the development firms in the world and asset management firms in the world has the reputation of having gone and worked with the world's preeminent architects. And what was it that made your father get to that, if you will?
0: Well, he became an engineer because his dad told him, engineers are not laid off, Jerry. That's what you need to become. So he became an engineer. But I think if you talk to anyone who knew him well or sat in a an architectural meeting where he was going over design or schematics with an architect, great architect, they would tell you there was an, an architect trapped in that body somewhere. I mean, it, he, it, it, is, it was his passion, his absolute passion. Nothing got him more excited than talking about the new design and, and what you could do differently to make it better. And it truly was his passion you met and still work with all
1: of these incredible architects. I mean, back when your father started working with Philip Johnson, all the great architects in the world were designing university campuses and art and museums. They weren't building office buildings like the Lipstick Building, which was your first development in New York, which Philip Johnson designed. How was it that your father, first of all, was able to get them to focus on building an office tower and then also make the numbers work? Because I would assume hiring some of these name brand architects was not exactly an easy thing to fit into the P&L.
0: Yeah, that's something I think Dan and some others at the firm really do get credit for and and rightly so. As you say, before, there may be a few exceptions, but really before Heinz, buildings were pretty boring rectangular boxes. And the prevailing wisdom was that you, you know, it was too expensive to bring in a great architect. We really changed the formula. And that's not just by hiring a great architect and letting him do what they want to do, because then you would have gotten a building that was too expensive and a, a floor plan that may not have been commercially viable. The magic was working directly with the architect in a rather creative tension sort of way to, to work with their design and be able to get the great design, but be able to tweak, maybe tweak the materials or tweak the curtain walls so that you were building at something at a reasonable cost premium and you were you're building a floor plate that worked for tenants and that was leasable. That was the real trick. And I think Dad and again some other folks really wrote the formula that's been followed many times by other firms going forward. And of course, you know, eventually you're able to prove that you could get a rent premium that justified the higher cost. So it became it became a real selling point rather than, than just a, a cost
2: increase. Yeah. And I'll just say too, you know, I think it's, you know, on the, the economic equation, it wasn't only the the rent premium and, and being able to attract the tenants, but certainly a high belief that better designed buildings retain tenants through downturns and ultimately that really increases the overall asset value of the building itself. And so For a firm that is thinking about the long-term, really thinking about owning these buildings for the long-term and the value over that long period, investing in that design and really, really spending the time, the appropriate capital that made sense to really increase the quality of the building was important for us as a long-term investor. And then the last thing I'll say too is I think one thing that the firm did really well is institutionalize that knowledge. And so that's something, you know, when we go through that creative process with the creative tension process with an architect, we bring as much to the table often, you know, as they do because we have a, a group internally that is involved in essentially every asset that we do. And they bring all of that built up experience knowledge to the table in you know how do we get an efficient use of our capital and still really deliver the best design that's going to create value over the long term
1: but Laura expand on that for a second for me because not only beyond the design and the long term outlook of what building a beautiful building would bring but Heinz was also extremely early as it relates to sustainable development i read in, in you know 13 of your buildings in 2000 got lead platinum status at a time when in 2000 there i mean there were very few companies focused on LEED and LEED Platinum. You got the first building ever in the state of Texas to get the LEED Platinum certification. That plays into this whole sustainability, long-term investment outlook. What was it, and I know you weren't in the company back then, but you know enough about the history and also how you're trying to take it forward. What was it that made you all so focused on that element of building not only beautiful buildings, but environmentally friendly buildings?
2: Sure. Yeah, I think a lot of it, originally stems from my grandfather's background as a mechanical engineer. My dad mentioned it, but that was his background by training and he absolutely brought that to the table and was very focused on, you know, how do we get real efficiency out of these buildings because there's an economic value to that, right? And especially over as you think about that long-term perspective, there's real value if you can can engineer the building to be significantly more efficient. And so I think from that early perspective, it really got built into our DNA in the same way that great design has. And it's something that's then infused in how we think about the long term. Now, what I will say is the topic of ESG more broadly has gotten significantly more complicated than I think it was when we we really set out to do what we do. And and I think certainly the opportunity to create economic value while also doing good for the world is something that we strive to do. I think we now need to think about ESG in terms, not only in terms of how we design a building, design and build a building, but how we invest in real estate, how we operate real estate, and how we think about it relative to our corporate culture. And so, you know, I think we're in the process of really diving into how to more broadly infuse ESG across everything that we do with, you know, I think we have 16 different commitments and objectives that we're in the process of carrying forward with several others it's on the horizon across creating a a livable future, carbon, you know, our people. And I think that's something that is certainly more complicated than it was before, but absolutely something that we are focused on continuing to be the leader in.
1: And it it will need your leadership over the coming years and decades to achieve it. Jeff, when you joined Heinz back in the 1980s, there was not a major office tower in America that was not being built by Heinz. And you built all these iconic, Buildings And just the, the volume that you all developed during that period of time is truly staggering. And then you get to the early 90s where you basically made the proposition that you'd go and buy somebody else's real estate. And Laura mentioned it previously. Talk for a moment about what it was that made you propose that you all ought to go into actually acquiring a building that wasn't designed and built by Hines. There was a tad of what Laura said of both pride and, and maybe a tad of arrogance that you all were building the very, very best buildings there were. So why would you buy anybody else's? It makes me think back to when we acquired our first company at Walker & Dunlop. And my father and my other partners in the business looked at me and said, well, how do we know how the people were trained and how do we know how they approach credit? And I said, well, that's what underwriting is for. Talk to us about that decision in the early 1990s and why you pushed so hard to broaden out.
0: Well, it, it was a pretty existential moment for the firm. I mean, as, you, as you say, you, can, uh, you need to be uh, careful not to trip up on your own hubris. And, you know, that literally was the argument. Why would we buy a building that someone else built? By definition, it was inferior. And I'd say, again, the answer is probably several fold. And one big driver, and this is also sort of a driver for us making a big international push, is if you go back to 1990, as you say, what we were in the 80s, the business we were in was building large CBD architecturally significant buildings in US CBDs. That was the business we were in. And you remember back then, that was a brutal time for real estate. The the business we were in was majorly overbuilt, horrendously overbuilt. So it looked like, you know, looking at our business, it might be 20 years before a new CBD office building might have been needed. That's certainly what we felt at the time. So the question is, do we sort of close up shop and wait for our business to return, or do we take our skill sets and do other things with them? One of them was to start looking internationally and and expand geographically, but the other was to take our experience as developers and as property managers and apply that to acquiring other people's projects. I mean, our, you know, our skill sets allowed us to evaluate a mechanical system in a, in a building we were looking to acquire and seeing was it a good system? What investment would it need to it? Could we improve the operation of it to uh, improve the bottom line? Was the location a, a location that was improving or getting worse with time? You know, our development experience gave us insight into that. And certainly our operational experience gave us a huge amount of, of comfort uh skill set to apply to the acquisition business so as we got into it we really found that those skills it really was translatable and that you know we're able to create uh, something pretty unique going forward it was a two year process probably to get approval to buy our our first building uh hasty johnston our current vice chairman and i i think dad just got tired of us and said sure go buy one and luckily things went pretty well
1: after that. So he probably gave you in hasty a little bit of a hard time about thinking that you were from both Harvard business school and that some case study told you that you ought to go do something like that.
0: We did bring in a consultant, you know, a- Uh, You probably brought brought McKinsey in. You probably got some former classmates in from McKinsey. Exactly. I
1: got you. It's great. So on that, Jeff, at the same time as buying other people's properties, you also really made a push into Europe. You'd already been in Mexico and you'd done a large industrial development in Mexico, but you really in the mid-90s started to push into Europe. Before I joined Walker & Dunlop, I spent my entire previous career outside of the United States in Latin America and in Europe. And I have some pretty good sense of how difficult it is to get things done in a foreign country with a foreign culture, in many instances with a foreign language, with foreign entitlement, et cetera, et cetera. How was it that you took this domestic focused business and had the ability to go and not only enter other markets? If I took Walker and Dunlop to to Warsaw tomorrow, I'd have to go find some great local Polish bankers and I go hire him or her and I'm kind of off to the races. You're talking about going to Warsaw and building a building. You're getting entitled. You're getting local construction talent. What was it that quite honestly allowed you all to have the confidence that you could go to Europe and be as successful as you were?
0: Well, it's, it's really, and we were also expanding into some of the emerging markets at the time in, in a pretty big way also it's really, really difficult, Willie. Really. I mean, <laughs> you look at our footprint now and dots all over the map and long tenure of people, but boy, it is just, it's tough. It's blocking and tackling. We did it by organic growth. And there were a lot of lessons learned along the way. Buying out a contract in, in Spain is very different than buying out a contract in Beijing. And, and you just have to learn those, you know, I would say a lot of our organizational growth was led by people who had been with Heinz for a long period of time. So they would spearhead the effort and help spread the culture. And our goal and where we've we become now is: you go to Heinz Spain and you don't see a U.S. company; you see a Spanish company run by Spaniards. Same for India, China. We are. We try to become local local players, and so you hire local people, and you, you do that very carefully and carefully vet and get people that you think will fit your culture, and then you, you imbue the culture with them uh, over time. But you really do have to be local, and it takes time. We, we, we made a lot of mistakes along the way, and a lot of lessons learned to get to where we are today, but it, it's just a to do that organically is which we think is the right way the only way you can sort of maintain that culture which is really the glue that holds everything together to do that organically just takes takes time and effort and that's that's why there are not a lot of people that have what we have it, it's really hard it's really tough to do it takes a lot of money and a lot of you know a lot of patience you really have to be I think long term and in, in being able to do that
1: Laura, as you think about that and about the size and scale of Heinz today with over 4,000 employees around the globe, what's the biggest challenge on a go-forward basis as it relates to both maintaining the core culture at Heinz, but at the same time, you are so international and multinational. The culture has to diffuse somewhat as you go around the globe, does it not?
2: Yes and no. So I spent my first five years with Heinz working in our Chicago office as a project manager, really sort of heads down on, you know, a million square foot office development there. And my next move really was was working with David Steinbach, who's our chief investment officer. And we spent really our first nine months essentially traveling the globe. I think I went to 18 different countries in nine months, something like that. One thing that really amazed me was as I walked into an office in in Gurgaon in India or in Paris or in San Francisco that Heinz culture really was there the office was very still very parisian or still was very local but i think and really this stems from i think my grandfather was such a cultural icon in our firm and i think had really such a strong pull that and then in the way that he really structured the business to allow allow autonomy and lead and and to really imbue trust in leaders to go out and own own their business in a way and be autonomous leaders while still being responsible for carrying that Heinz culture carrying that Heinz flag and some of the the deepest values that we have around integrity and quality i think has really I think lasted and stood the test of time. And those leaders have then infused the culture as they've organically built offices in local geographies. And yes, you know, I think it's, it is absolutely a thing that, you know, I think we need to protect most fiercely and frankly through COVID it's something that we've drawn down on our cultural capital, I think has been, I think it's what's allowed us to over the last year be highly effective because we have such a strong cultural glue But we're feeling, we're feeling the fact that we've drawn down on that capital. And we do a lot of work pulling people together globally, either for internal conferences, for trips, for learning opportunities across the firm. And obviously, we haven't been able to do that, not in the same way. I think that's something we're going to need to push into heavily as we come out of COVID. And then having our cultural center's in our offices to we've hired 600 new people since the start of covid so being able to have a cultural center where these new hires can come in and learn feel that culture in the office you know from the leaders from the people that have the long tenure that we have we do have you know it is part of our strategy to support our leaders in in staying for the long term because that's how you continue to maintain that capital and infuse that capital. And so, you know, I think we have to be extremely focused on it, but I do think it's part of our secret sauce. And I think people across the firm feel a really strong ownership in carrying it forward. It doesn't just come from us. If it just came from us, it would fit, you know, we'd never be able to do this. It comes from, you know, leaders across the firm really taking ownership and responsibility and carrying the culture forward.
1: Jeff, Laura just commented that you've grown the firm by 15% during the pandemic. What's the biggest challenge now as we get out of it, as it relates to sustained growth, culture, what have you? I mean, we've all been locked down for a year. You haven't been able to get on a plane and go visit with a team and to use the two places that Laura just said, India or in France. What are you feeling right now as CEO as it relates to what kind of the the most pressing issue is to kind of get back up and get going post-pandemic?
0: I would totally concur with Laura. It's culture-related. It's working on the redepositing the culture that we have had to withdraw. And so there is going to be a focus on getting together and actively working on that. So I can't say anything more than Laura. (laughs) or And as you look out, I think
1: right now, And I want to get to the asset management side of it because, obviously, it's so much more than development. But right now, you have about 150, 156 developments going on around the globe, which is just a staggering number. As you look out to what the pandemic has done, to the way that we work, to the way that we live, to the way that we shop... What are you looking at in those 156 that says, man, we are just loving having that building or that mall or that community coming online in the next year or two because we see great opportunity there?
0: Well, I mean, the obvious answer to that is the industrial side. COVID has obviously uh, boosted e-commerce, which is creating just unprecedented demand on the industrial side. So we're, we're, we're certainly... Benefiting from that, but but the harder answer is, is is going to be a complex answer, and a lot of it is we don't quite know yet. We know a lot of things that were already happening are have been accelerated by COVID big time. Real estate as a service, different product types sort of merging and becoming you know, having the definition be a little fuzzier between them going forward. The technology side, all of that has just been really ramped up by COVID. I mean, just to talk about office for a second, you know, as Laura said, office is going to be, it's unclear what the effect on office is going to be, but my feeling is it's going to be less of the sort of person sitting behind a, a screen doing spreadsheets, which certainly can be done from elsewhere. And it is going to be creating places that people want to go to, that people want to go and share and interrelate and work on training that next generation or things that really do move the culture along. It's diversity and inclusion are something that every firm is really trying to make a big push into. And how do you do that in the world that we've, we've had for the last year? So that's an important factor that I think, again, people are going to need to get back together and to be able to make real progress on.
1: So, Laura, your dad just talked about technology. I know you all are an investor in Fifth Wall, and I had Brendan Wallace on uh, the Walker webcast about a month ago, and he was fantastic with Casey Berman from Canaver Creek, just talking about where Fifth Wall is is making investments. What do you think kind of, if you will, sticks? What are you, what are you seeing out there? I've heard you talk about, we work in shared office space and the fact that Heinz needs to adapt to clients' needs and being flexible for their needs and desires as far as your tenant base is concerned. What are you seeing from, a when we look forward, what do you think is really going to change the landscape from a kind of a prop tech standpoint?
2: Sure. It's a great question. And I think, you know, as dad said, I think a lot of things have been accelerated and made clear or come into relief, if you will, through COVID. I continue to think flexibility is going to be something that our clients and tenants are going to be looking for. And the way I would frame it is less in the sense of having flex office as an option. To me, it's more, how can a building owner and building manager really be thinking proactively to solve problems for tenants and clients that they don't even know they have? What that requires is, at least from our perspective, a vertical integration allows the opportunity to... Be flexible to meet the needs. So that really, you know, as we think about, as an example, flex office, it becomes part of the offering that one can give to clients and tenants to potentially solve problems or meet needs that they have. Now, I think when it comes to technology, I think that technology that is making space solutions easier that is integrating the use of space with the actual needs of the tenant in a much more seamless way, those to me are the ones that are going to rise to the top and become really important. I think one thing that we are, we are working through is from a, a building owner and manager standpoint is, and this is really across all asset classes, is how do you start to integrate all the different technologies that exist out in the prop tech world in a way that become functional and start to become seamless for both the end user and then also for us as as a manager and owner. And so to me, that is some of the next step of how do you take technology that is the building access technology and technology around security and technology around all the different types of technology that are being created out there and start to weave them together in an actual useful way.
0: I would also add that in terms of what Laura was saying about knowing what the tenants need before they know it, one of the big things that we're just scratching the surface on, and again, our vertical integration allows us potentially incredible volume of data that we have available to us over time, and, and that data will become more and more important in terms of how we provide service to the tenants. So Jeff,
1: just talking about the scale and how big you are today, you launched the Heinz Global REIT in 2009, right after the GFC, and that has become a fantastic vehicle for you all. You've raised, I can't remember how many distinct funds, but you seem to have a strategy that, As I read through your website, it seemed like there was a Heinz Global, Heinz Emerging Markets. I mean, you've got funds for pretty much everything out there. What's your take of the capital markets today? Because you all have such amazing investor relationships and you have those relationships around the globe. As you talk to that investor base, what are they looking for as it relates to not only core returns, because we've all seen returns come down, but as it relates to, are they saying we want to be in emerging markets? We want to be in the established markets. We want to be in multifamily versus office. What's the, you know, I, I know everyone's got a different opinion, but give me a kind of a summary of what your take of where we are today coming out of the pandemic.
0: Well, everyone wants to be in beds and sheds. I mean, that's pretty, uh, no one wants to be in retail and, and office is sort of, uh, you know. Does not- that present an opportunity for a firm of your size and sure. scale? Sure, of course. Change is generally good for us. We're generally able to, able to profit at the margin when, there's, when there is change. So that is good for us. But as you say, there are a variety of opinions. I think the one thing that if we're talking about the institutional investor world, and there may be a different answer for, say, the retail or high net worth group, but the institutional investors are, I'd say, the one common theme is they all want to have, have us make their life easier. They are trying to reduce the number of managers they deal with. They, they want managers that can handle, as, as you were pointing out, the broad array of, you know, be able to offer multiple options that, you know, they can pick and choose from. Having relationships takes time and, you know, organizational effort. So they're, you know, they're all looking to become more efficient over time. And again, that, we think that's sort of an opportunity for our type of firm, given that we are.
1: Laura, I just heard your dad use the phrase beds and sheds, which I have not heard before, and I'm going to use it from here on out. I just love it. But you guys are big on, you're focusing a lot on beds and you're also focusing on beds in the single family rental space. What's your take on multifamily versus single family rental and the the housing industry, most specifically here in the United States?
2: Sure. We've been pushing into the multifamily space for the last almost 15 years. And you know, I think it's something that we continue to be interested in and I think is continues to be a big opportunity. The single-family rental is something that we are very excited about and I think something that a skill set that I'd say we've been developing over the last 10 years as well as we've been pushing into a land platform and then also building our multifamily for rent platform it speaks to some of the trends in my mind where asset classes are continuing to converge in some ways. And one thing that, you know, that we've been doing is we've, you know, over the last 15 years has really been diversifying across asset classes, across property types, again, organically building our skill sets. And we're now at a place where our living platform, our industrial and logistics platform and retail platforms as well are huge businesses in and of themselves we've really developed a lot of organic know-how in those areas but now we're able to start converging some of that experience where where the opportunity arises whether that's multi-level industrial or how retail and logistics potentially start to come together i think single family for rent is another another opportunity for us and you know where we see just i think coming out of this this market moment, I think we're going to see a lot of opportunity for that in some of the mid-tier cities and some of those, those areas. And so this has been part of our growth story. And then having this diverse skill set that we've really built over the last 10 years allows us to drive into potentially new opportunities.
0: Just to emphasize that, I mean, to have the skill set to be able to do the entitlement for the putting together a big piece of land to be able to handle the construction of the infrastructure, to be able to handle the construction of the houses, to convert, to lease the, the houses and then to operate them long term. Those are skill sets we all have ex- we have experience in each part of that. And when you think of it, that's pretty hard to put those different skill sets together. I mean there aren't many people that have have all of those. So it's, you know, the demand is certainly there. We're, we're super excited about it. And on that, Jeff, given the scale
1: of Heinz, given not only that you're diversified across asset classes, but geographies and countries, et cetera, et cetera, does that give you the luxury to be fully invested all the time?
0: Yeah. I mean, I I think that's if you're in lots of geographies and you're lots of product types, acquisition versus development, real estate is a cyclical business and things come up or in favor or out of favor and you know to be able to pivot on a dime to different emphasizing different geographies or different product types or acquiring when it's not a good time to develop that's hugely valuable to us and in, in being able to keep the organization fully active all the time and we as cyclical as real estate is our the number of people employed by Heinz is not cyclical I mean it's, it's continual growth pattern.
2: Yeah. And I'd say just, so essentially being diversified globally across asset classes and across the risk spectrum allows us to really pull the right lever in the right geography at the right time. And, you know, I think the other piece of it is being a privately held family business allows us to really be thinking for the long term. And so the notion of being invest, fully invested all the time, I think is aligned with that because we are you know, we're constantly thinking about generational growth. We're not thinking about quarterly growth. We're not thinking about, you know, we are, we're investing for the long-term. And so I think that's the other piece that, that really allows us to do that.
1: Jeff, Laura just said generational growth. You took over the company from one of the true pioneers in the commercial real estate business to ever have been on in the world. And by the way, I, I am sorry for the passing of your father and your grandfather uh, back in August of this past year. But you stepped into those big shoes and have taken this company to a whole different level. And it's astounding what you have done in your leadership of Heinz. You're now faced with transferring leadership and ownership of the firm to the next generation of Heinzes. What did you learn during the transition from your dad to you that you'll either repeat or not repeat as it relates to your own children?
0: We've talked a lot about us on this, on this call. And the thing to really stress is the way we make decisions at Heinz is, is maybe a little different than other firms. We're almost Japanese in decision-making style. Everything is consensus-driven. We have an executive committee, which is the top 17 people in our firm that it really acts as our, our board of directors, more than a board of directors. It's it's actively involved in the details and the sausage making, etc. And the vast majority of decisions that are made in the firm are made by that committee or our investment committee, both of which Laura and I have. We, we, we have votes on various issues and, and they're blind votes. And Laura and I each have one vote. So uh, literally, decisions are made by a very strong institutional team that's been with Hines for a long period of time. So you know, as much as you are nice to hand credit off to us, the credit really goes to the whole firm. And that was maybe not quite as as true when Dad handed things off to me, but pretty, pretty darn true back then. So the true answer is we could mess it up big time and, it, and the firm wouldn't miss a beat. I could be hit by a bus, and truly, the firm would not would not miss a beat going forward. So I think it's you know look a lot of it is cultural and personality wise how you how you deal with these rock stars that are helping us run the company, and and how you, uh, as Laura was saying earlier, you know allow them the freedom to operate as they see fit, but all within the construct of big strategic efforts that the firm is undertaken you know I think it is managing not from setting edicts on high, but how you how you work with the senior team and you know Laura's doing that extraordinarily well. so it's it's the touch your feel your side that takes some takes some time and building those relationships. And Laura talked about traveling around the world. those relationships are really important and those bonds are really important. Again, she's doing it very well. she has a couple of brothers who are, you know not quite as long tenured at the firm but they're at various stages of doing that also so it's uh um, how fun is
1: it for you to have your three
0: kids all working inside the company it's a lot of fun except when they uh are telling me what to do or to get back to the <laughs> office from your from your trip but in yeah, grief <laughs> yeah I mean it's it's more challenging it makes my life more difficult but you know obviously obviously it's hugely satisfying and it's just a wonderful thing that, you know, I think we can, this firm that we consider a family legacy, how we can, seems well on its way, uh, successfully to the next generation. That's pretty satisfying.
1: In talking about Laura and her her brothers asking you to get back to the, to the office, I'm going to let both of you get back to your day. And <laughs> uh, I'm just going to thank both of you for taking the time. It's a real honor to have both of you on. It is unbelievable to see what your family has created and the firm that you have and the presence you have around the globe. And as it relates to architecture and sustainability, you all have been just true leaders that have benefited all of us. And so thank you not only for coming on and sharing your time with us today, but for all that your family has done to enhancing the built environment that we all live in. Thanks, Willie. We appreciate the time. Thank
2: you so much for having us. It was a really great conversation.
1: We will be back next week with another Walker webcast. I have analysts from JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley coming to talk about the commercial real estate REIT and services industry. So please join us next Wednesday at 1230 Eastern time. In the meantime, I wish everyone a happy St. Patrick's day, a great day. Tom Melody, happy birthday again. And to Laura and Jeff, thank you both again for joining me today. Have a great one.